And as you are turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, apparently it is this month, October, is Pastor Appreciation Month, which, I, you know, is like kind of a made-up thing. But I will use that as an occasion to express my gratitude to the church for uh, the pastors that God has given us here. And I can tell you as someone who has pastored a small rural church uh, alone, uh, when we were in Kentucky, uh, eventually Andrew came down and he pastored with me, but before Andrew got there, I was the only pastor of the church, and it is not the way it is supposed to be. There's a reason God gave a plurality of men as pastors and elders for the health of the church and for the pastors themselves. So I express my gratitude now to our church for uh, pastors Bobby, Andrew, Brett, uh, Mike, Zach, of course, Pastor Kevin, and even uh, the two men in the room who are no longer pastoring or eldering, but uh, were Jerry Shampoo and my dad, Randy Loganow, just grateful Grateful that God has blessed us uh, with, with men to shepherd this church, uh, to, to pastor alongside, and also so that as a pastor, I can be pastored. And there is no one who is above being shepherded, uh, including the shepherds. And so that's why God has commanded all local churches to have a plurality of elders and pastors, and I am grateful uh, for the ones he's given us. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the cornerstone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven... We believe that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. We believe that all scripture is breathed out by you 
God, and it is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth. We confess that your word is the truth. We pray, our Father, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. And we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets and the apostles to write your holy, inerrant Word. Amen. Every Thursday I read a... Uh, email newsletter from Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, and uh, when we lived in Louisville and when I attended Boyce College and Southern Seminary, Dr. Moore was the dean of the School of Theology uh, at Southern Seminary. And I took several classes with Dr. Moore. I took theology with him. I took an ethics class with Dr. Moore. And on an even more personal note, uh, no pun intended, more personal note, Dr. Moore was uh, one of the pastors at the church that Bethany and I attended before I started pastoring in rural Kentucky. And so we sat under Russell Moore's preaching every week. So we, we are big Russell Moore fans. But every week as part of his newsletter, his email newsletter, he includes a quote of the moment. And the September 21st newsletter featured this quote by Mark Twain. It says, it doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mobs say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. Republics are founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe in, no matter the odds or consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world No, you move. That quote may sound familiar to you, at least somewhat familiar, because it's paraphrased in uh, the Captain America comic books and films. In fact, see, here's where this gets a little confusing. I, I saw that quote from the newsletter in September, and I posted it online, and uh, someone reached out to me, one of... Uh, a guy I met at John and Liz's wedding reached out to me, and he was like, hey, man, that's a great quote, but I just want you to know, Mark Twain didn't say it. It's from Captain America. <laughs> so I don't know where the quote originates from, whether Mark Twain said it. I, I have no idea. This is how the quote goes in the Captain America film. I don't know if it's the same in the comic book or not, but this is how, it sound, how, this is how they paraphrase it in the film. Compromise where you can, where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, 
It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye, and say, no, you move. This is exactly what is happening in Acts chapter 4. The Jewish leadership are demanding that the apostles compromise on preaching the gospel. The Jewish leadership telling Peter and John that something wrong is something right. How the apostles and the early church respond to the mobs and the politicians is instructive for us because even though this scene happened some 2,000 years ago, we still feel the pressure as Christians to compromise. The demands for the church to compromise have evolved over the millennia, but the core principle has remained consistent. The world, the flesh, and the devil all persuade and pressure us to compromise on Christian doctrine and on Christian ethics. How does God want us to respond? That is what we see here in Acts chapter 4. And we're going to divide Acts chapter 4 into two sections, two headings, for any note takers out there. In 1993, Dr. Al Mohler preached his inaugural convocation sermon at Southern Seminary, and he entitled that sermon, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Twenty years later, on the anniversary of his inauguration, Dr. Moeller preached a sermon entitled, Don't Just Stand There, Do Something. So we're going to borrow from Dr. Moeller this morning, and those are going to be our two headings. Verses 1 through 22, don't just do something, stand there. And verses 23 through 37, don't just stand there, do something. So let's start Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Don't just do something, stand there. Acts 4 picks up right where we left off two weeks ago when Pastor Kevin preached Acts chapter 3. If you'll remember, Peter and John healed a crippled man. Of course, that's part of the conversation here in Acts chapter 4. Then they pre- the apostles start preaching the gospel, tracing a biblical theology from Father Abraham all the way to Christ. The narrative tra- uh, seamlessly transitions here from Acts chapter 3 to Acts chapter 4 as the apostles are still speaking still preaching, the Jewish leadership arrive on the scene and they are, quote, greatly annoyed. The scene is reminiscent of the Gospels, isn't it? In the Gospels, the Jewish leadership are unhinged by the preaching of Jesus. And now they assume that they have handled that problem by crucifying Jesus. But now these uneducated common men who had been with Jesus are preaching about Jesus. 
So in an effort to silence the apostles, the Jewish leaders arrest them. They need to get these preachers off the street because Luke tells us in Acts chapter 4 that the number of Christians, which on the day of Pentecost was 3,000, has now grown to 5,000 men. And that doesn't even include women and children. So the gospel is spreading, just like Jesus said it would, beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It is spreading like wildfire. People are getting saved. And the Jewish leadership are not happy. And so they arrest Peter and John. And the next day, they have to wait to question them because it's evening time. So the next day, they question the apostles, and they ask them, by what power, by what name are you doing these things? How did you heal this crippled man? He's 40 years old. He's been crippled his whole life. By what power, by what name do you do these things? Verse 8 says that Peter is, responds filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and church, that's our reminder that Peter is not responding out of his own power or out of his own wisdom or out of his own courage. Peter is responding in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is speaking through him. The ascended Lord Jesus who sent his Holy Spirit from the right hand of God the Father is giving Peter and John the power to stand, to stand in the truth. And what does Peter say? By the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches the gospel from Psalm 18 verse 22. Peter is practicing Christ-centered preaching. He's expositing Psalm 118, verse 22, in light of the gospel of Jesus. Peter says that the Lord Jesus, the, the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus, is the stone who was rejected by the builders, the builders being Israel, God's old covenant people. But in spite of their rejection, Jesus has become the cornerstone. The New Testament quotes this passage, Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That passage is cited or quoted more than almost any other passage in the Old Testament. That Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament a lot. It's applied to Jesus a lot. And that language of cornerstone, of builders, should make you think of the temple. That's what you should think of, because that's what the original audience would have thought of. This is not the cornerstone of, of any building. It's not just an illustration to talk about how important Jesus is. No, he's referring to the temple. Jesus is the cornerstone. The temple is where God dwelt with his people under the old covenant. But the temple was merely a signpost pointing us forward to Christ, who is the true and final dwelling place of God with man. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. As we prepare to move into Advent and Christmas, we will sing, we will pray, we will talk, we will rejoice, we will preach about Emmanuel, God with us. That's the temple. 
That's where heaven and earth come together. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the eschatological temple. John 2, 19 through 22. Tear this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. And the apostles knew after his resurrection that he was talking about himself. Jesus is the eschatological temple. He's the goal. He's the end. He's the true and final temple. There needs to be no other temple ever again because Jesus is the temple. He is the place where God and man dwell together. And church, Peter is preaching the gospel from Psalm 118 verse 22 as he's speaking to the Jewish leadership, those who would administer the temple, and he's saying, this is really good news. This is good news because God originally created us to dwell with him, right? The temple was the means under the old covenant by which that was semi-restored. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was with God. He had un fettered access to the one true and holy God, but then Adam sinned against God. Adam broke God's law, and then creation fell, and now the result is that we are all born in sin. We are all born with a sin nature, and the result is that we sin. God told Adam, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 17, excuse me. Romans 5, 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, we need to be made right with God. This is the universal human problem. This is the reason that guilt and shame are universal human experiences. Because we are all born with a sin nature, and by nature we break God's law. We need to be made right with our holy God. We need the forgiveness of sin. We need cleansing. We need the hope of eternal life because what we have earned is eternal conscious punishment in hell. That is what every single human being justly deserves. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. Because of sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is what we call the gospel. That's what Peter's preaching here in Acts chapter 4. It's what he's been preaching all throughout the book of Acts because the gospel tells us that the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, became a man in his incarnation. John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God with us. Pastor Mike led us a few moments ago in the reciting of the creed which tells us that Jesus the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and the creeds tell us that he is truly God and he is truly man. Scripture tells us that Jesus lived 30 plus years and never sinned. 
Hebrews 4.15, 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly, making Jesus the only truly righteous person who ever lived. Jesus never sinned by what he did or what he left undone. He always loved God with his whole heart. He always loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus never broke God's law. Jesus never missed the mark. Jesus never sinned. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That's the good news. We need to be restored. We need to be made right with God. We need to be back in right relationship with God. We need forgiveness. We need cleansing. We need eternal life. And that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus died as the penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of God's people. What does that mean? That means that Jesus was our substitute. He stood in our place and he paid our penalty. Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus is the substitute who pays the penalty to atone for our sins, to justify us, to right the wrong, to pay the debt. Jesus' death paid our penalty, cleansed our guilt, and imputed to us his righteousness. So Jesus is without sin. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And after Jesus paid death's penalty, Jesus was released from death because death had no right to hold Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Death had no power over him. So on the third day, Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And 40 days after that, he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the message that we call the gospel And this message demands a response. You must repent and believe this good news. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner. It means to declare, I am guilty. To acknowledge what scripture says about my condition, my actions, that it's true. And to turn away from your sin. That's what repentance means, to turn away. To believe means to place your faith in Jesus alone. Faith begins with knowledge. Everything I just explained to you about God's holiness, about your sin, about the person and work of Jesus, this is the knowledge you need. You now know everything you need to know in order to believe in Jesus. You are not missing any information. Faith also, though, includes assent. Having the knowledge is not enough. You must also assent to the validity of these truth claims about God's holiness, about your sin, about the person and work of Jesus. You must affirm and not deny this message. 
But there are even some who have knowledge of the gospel and some who assent to the gospel, but they do not have faith. In fact, James tells us that the demons have knowledge and assent. James 2, 19. What the demons do not have and what you need is trust. You must transfer your trust to Jesus Christ alone. Trust is the key and final element of faith. And to trust in Christ means that you are betting your life, your death, and your life after death on the promise that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Have you repented? Have you believed? Are you trusting in Jesus alone? That's the message that Peter preaches here from Psalm 118, verse 22. And the Jewish leadership, as you would imagine if you're familiar with the Bible at all, the New Testament, they don't like what Peter has to say. And so they demand now that the apostles no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. We're going to let you go. All right? They, they, can't, they can't really punish the apostles right now because everybody sees the crippled man healed, right? And everyone's super pumped about it. And they don't want the crowd to turn on them. So they're like, all right, we'll let you go. But no more, no more teaching about Jesus. No more praying in Jesus' name. No more giving credit to Jesus. No more talking in this resurrection business. Leave that alone. Okay, you can talk about God. You know, you can help people. Just don't talk about Jesus. Just don't talk about sin. Just don't talk about confession and repentance. Just don't talk about resurrection. Don't talk about Jesus. Well, Peter and John answer them. They say, listen, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can decide yourself on that one. You must judge. But Peter says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. You can tell me not to preach Christ, Peter says, all you want. I don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. I saw him. What we have seen and what we have heard. The Jewish leadership here demand that the apostles compromise. They demand that the apostles say that something wrong is something right. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John respond, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Church, we too will feel pressure to compromise on the gospel. The unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil will entice us or even demand 
that we compromise on Christian doctrine and Christian ethics. For 2,000 years, Christians have been pressured at different times and in different ways to compromise. Christians have been pressured to say that something right is something wrong, or that something wrong is something right. And it's no different for us. You know that. You felt that pressure. And church, it is our responsibility in obedience to King Jesus to stand there. When we are enticed or demanded to compromise on the exclusivity of the gospel, or when we are demanded or enticed to compromise on Jesus' command to love our neighbors regardless of what our neighbor looks like or believes, when we are demanded or enticed to compromise on the sanctity of human life from the point of fertilization, when we are enticed or demanded to compromise on issues of sexuality, identity, and gender, when the world entices you, when the flesh entices you to love your money too much or to equate American politics with the kingdom of God, regardless of how you're tempted to compromise obedience to Christ, the temptation will come. And as a follower of Christ, you must plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth, the living water. Pastor Bobby read from Psalm 1 in our call to worship. If you were here in August, you'll remember Pastor Zach preached the gospel from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says this of the blessed man, that his delight is in the law of Yahweh and on God's law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Psalm 1, 2 through 3. Church, when the world, when the flesh, when the devil entice you or even demand that you compromise on your Christian convictions, it is your duty to stare them in the eye and say, no, you move. Don't just do something. Stand there. But by the same token, we must not just stand there, we must do something. Or maybe a better way to say it is that we can only stand there by doing specific things. And that is what we see in verses 23 through 37. How are the apostles and the early church able to stand on their Christian convictions in the face of ostracism and persecution? What does the ascended Lord Jesus give us to help us stand on the gospel and stand on orthodox doctrine? The, answer that we, the answers that we see in verses 23 through 37 is twofold. 
prayer and fellowship of the church. Or maybe another way to say it is prayer is friendship with God and fellowship of the church is friendship with our brothers and sisters. So let's look at those two things. How do we stand in our Christian convictions? How do we stand in the gospel? First is by prayer, friendship with God. Prayer is how we talk to God. God speaks to us through his word. We just sang that song, didn't we? Speak, O Lord. The Lord speaks to us through the scriptures, and prayer is how we speak to God. Prayer reveals our dependence on God. It is one half of our relationship with God. And here in Acts chapter 4, the scripture shows us that the early church were able to stand in the face of persecution because, first and foremost, they relied on God. We should note here in Acts 4 that the church is all praying together. Individual prayer, of course, is important, but it is imperative that we pray together as a church. And you can't pray with the church if you're never at church. Don't deprive yourself of this means of grace that God has given to help you withstand the trials and tribulations of our broken world. You need the prayers of the saints And you need to pray with the saints. When it comes to your individual prayer life, if you want to grow substantially in prayer, I would suggest that you study the prayers in Scripture. Here in Acts chapter 4, we have a prayer from the early church that's been inscripturated for us. And so I want to point out two principles for you from this prayer in verses 24 through 30, that will benefit your prayer life, that will help you as you pray. Number one, notice that the early church prayed Scripture. A substantial portion of the prayer from Acts chapter 4 is quoting from Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. Again, in August, you remember Pastor Brett preached the gospel from Psalm 2. Here in Acts chapter 4, the early church is praying Psalm 2. We talked about this a little bit this morning in our Bible class, Pastor Brett's Bible class. So many of us, I would suspect in this room, so many of us have been trained in low church uh, so that we are adverse. We have this, this adversity toward prayers that are written down or prayers that are scripted or prayer, praying the Bible or prayers from prayer books like the Book of Common Prayer or the Valley of Vision or others. We, we have like, we're adverse to those things because we tend to feel like prayer is only genuine if we're speaking extemporaneously, if we're speaking in the moment from the heart, that that's genuine prayers. And we don't want to be like other churches that mindlessly recite prayers. And, and it's true, prayer ought to be genuine, of course, but we lose so much, church, when that's our mentality. That is such an immature, weak position for us to hold. Of course, there is no, nothing wrong with praying from the heart in the moment, your own words 
that are coming to your head, but if that is exclusively how you pray, then you are barely scratching the surface of the depths of prayer. There are so many beautiful, thoughtful, orthodox prayers in the scripture and from church history. Again, books like the Valley of Vision, the Book of Common Prayer, that are glorifying to God and that are good for you. And of course, there's nothing better than praying scripture. When you pray extemporaneously, it may be genuine, but it can become stagnant or even worse, you could say something sinful or heretical. When you pray scripture, you know everything that you're saying is glorifying to God and good for you because it is the inspired word of God. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Expound upon it with your own words. Or just offer it word for word as a prayer to God with a genuine heart. Pray the Ten Commandments repenting of your sin as you pray through the Ten Commandments. Pray the Apostles' Creed. Pray the Psalms, rephrasing each verse in your own words. Pray the Bible. Find a good prayer book. Find a good devotional. Grow in your prayer life. The other thing I want you to notice from this prayer here in Acts chapter 4 is that in the prayer, and this is true for most if not all of the prayers in scripture, that the early church praised God before they petitioned God. So it can be tempting for us, you know, we may not feel this way, but we kind of, you know, um, practically treat God as if he's a cosmic vending machine. You know, we just go to him with our needs um, and, and, and that's how we pray uh, a majority And that's not what we see here in Acts chapter 4. They praise God and then they petition God. They don't petition God until verse 29. Everything before verse 29 is praising God for his sovereignty. Did you notice that strong language there in Acts chapter 4? Everything that your plan, that you predestined to take place is what took place. They are glorifying God for his sovereignty and the gospel, and then they petition God that they would speak boldly about the gospel. Jesus does the same thing when he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. The first half of the Lord's Prayer is praising God, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is all praising God. And then the petitions begin. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Praise, then petition. Same thing here in Acts chapter 4. We begin, we should always address God, worshiping God for who he is and what he has done and then move to our needs, our wants before him. So prayer, how do we stand there? How do we stand in truth? How do we stand in the gospel? Prayer, individual prayer, community prayer. Secondly, the fellowship of the local church. Christ has given us the fellowship of the local church to help us stand in the gospel. Now, Acts 4, 32 through 37 is a bit of a recapitulation of Acts chapter 2. 
You'll remember if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 2, we discussed at length the fellowship of the early church. Uh, Fellowship does not refer merely to coffee before a Bible study or a church meal. Fellowship is deeper than that. Fellowship is wider than that. And even though the word fellowship is not used here in Acts chapter 4, it is used in Acts chapter 2, the idea is the same. The Greek word is koinonia. It means an association involving close mutual relations and involvement. It is a picture of a group of rowers who are all rowing in the same direction. So fellowship means that we're all working together toward the same goal. All of our lives are headed in the same direction, and we're helping each other along the way. We are all sojourning to the eternal city, and fellowship means that we're doing everything we can to get each other there. This is one of the reasons Christ gave us the gift of the local church. And once again, this is why coming to church on Sunday should not be viewed as optional in your home. Going to church is a matter of life and death. The church, the community of the gospel, the saints, the body of Christ... The gathering of God's people give you strength so that you can stand in the gospel. The world, the flesh, the devil, they entice you. They demand of you that you cave in on your Christian convictions. But you have a family of people here who are in this with you. We encourage one another, we rebuke one another, we strengthen one another, we laugh with one another, we cry with one another, we help one another, we carry one another, we pursue one another. Did you notice in verse 23, when talking about the early church, the scripture says that the apostles went to their friends. The Greek literally says they went to their own. You know, we often rightly use family language here at church. And the church is church family. We're brothers and sisters. And that is good and true. But we are also friends. We should be. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis about friendship. This is from The Four Loves. Lewis says, Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. Church, we may have different backgrounds, different opinions, different interests, but what we all share in common 
is the most intrinsically true reality in all of existence. The gospel of Jesus. The gospel is the you too that we all have in common. And that is a gift from God. In Acts chapter 4, the early church is praying for each other, praying with each other. They're providing for each other. Throughout church history, fellowship has looked different, but the consistent reality is that the church is there for one another. We need each other. We are the family of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you don't stand a chance on your own. But the good news is that you don't have to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil alone. Because Christ has given us the church. And the harsh reality is that until Jesus comes back, this world is going to continue to persuade us and pressure us to compromise on Christian doctrine and Christian ethics. Whether it is the pressure to deny the divinity of Christ or the pressure to compromise on a biblical sexual ethic or the persuasion to worship your money, until Jesus returns, the world, the flesh, and the devil are perpetually working to convince us that something wrong is something right. And when the world tries to entice us, or when the world even demands that we compromise, church, it is our duty through prayer, through the fellowship of the church, to the glory of God, in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to plant ourselves like a tree, to look them in the eye, and to say, no, you move. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask in your